Welcome to Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. I am Jason Snell, and I am joined by Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. Julia, welcome to Episode 1 of Downstream at Last. I'm so excited, and it would be remiss of me not to wish you a happy birthday so people who are listening can tweet you. I guess I share a birthday with Downstream now. I don't know how that happened. It's just we picked Wednesdays, so here I am. Um, So last week... In episode zero, <laughs> you mentioned Squid Game, and I had no idea what you were talking about. None. Zero. I was like, ah, okay, I guess I got to look that up, or you can explain it to me. I have learned a lot about this in the last week. Squid Game is the viral, worldwide phenomenon for Netflix uh, from South Korea, but now uh, a hit everywhere. And I feel like we should start with Squid Game because this is a big story for the biggest streaming service. Um, And how Netflix has, because of its international reach, I think, at least in part, you know, and the fact that it's committed to developing content in different countries that it serves, when something breaks out, it can break out worldwide. So, um, I know you've done you you've done some observation about this in the last week, but uh, this is this is like I, I feel like this is the thing that maybe could only happen with Netflix. Yeah, the, I feel like also this is the only show that exists right now, and I keep meaning to start it because I want to be in on the hype with all the cool kids who are watching it right now. And I just started watching Manifest though, and that's where my attention has brought me <laughs> for the last several um, weeks. Um, <laughs> Squid Game. So, yeah, I mean, I think like the way to set up why Squid Game is such an interesting moment for Netflix is one, not only is it a South Korean and very South Korean show that has traveled to basically every region that Netflix is in. It's almost it's number one or at least within kind of top 10, top 15. But what we see a lot when we look at it is that Netflix, because the way that Netflix drops shows, which is all at once, why we, we binged quite often, the demand, like in terms of like how people are really interested in it and, and therefore might be watching it or, 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 or queuing it up, tends to last two to four days, which makes sense. You watch it over the weekend and you're kind of done with it. But this is still growing. It's like the demand is not peaked yet for it. It is still hitting number one in other countries. It's still staying at number one. People are still coming into it. And that's something that we really see with weekly shows. And that's something that Netflix has always struggled with. It's how do we capture that really inherent value of like a weekly show that everyone wants to talk about. And so it's been really fun to watch it, them have that with Squid Game, a show that really kind of came out of nowhere in terms of global impact and is suddenly the only show people can talk about. Yeah, I mean you you can't you can't buy that kind of experience and I mean I and I mean that literally because we've seen so many uh, different companies spend huge money on things in order to build an international mm-hmm. franchise hit and I feel like this this should teach everybody once again the same lesson which is you know these franchises don't get assembled they they emerge they, they it happens kind of organically um and that's what happened here that that you know Netflix didn't know this was going to be a hit right like you made the point on Twitter this week that if they had known it was going to be a hit you would have seen advertising for it everywhere all over the world and they had no idea but now because they make so many different shows in so many different regions they have the opportunity for something to be a hit Yeah, and I think what you said earlier, too, about how this could really only happen on Netflix, I think, does speak volumes to, one, the fact that Netflix, I mean, we look at something like Amazon, like Amazon Prime Video, by nature of Amazon Prime, is in a bunch of different countries, and they they have a really global presence. Disney Plus, 
specifically Disney Plus, not Hulu, right, which is their whole general platform. Disney Plus is in a bunch of countries. HBO Max is rolling out. But Netflix has really established self, itself, I should say, as the core streaming service that people need and in different countries. And I think what Netflix has done really well is develop locally and regionally and then really try to promote those shows traveling elsewhere. But I think Ted Sarandos back in 2018, of course, who's the co-CEO of Netflix now, he said that they go into every show in, in international countries and regions hoping that that show is a hit in that country and or, or that region. And if it travels, that's an awesome success. And that is core to what their strategy is. But they can't go into it being like, hope this is a global hit uh, outside of a few franchises that have really worked for them, mainly being Stranger Things. But I think to your point, they they ha I imagine that I, I haven't talked to anyone there, but I assume that they knew it was going to be a hit in South Korea. Like when we looked at it on our end, it was already rising pretty quickly pre-release in South Korea. Like it was already like five, number five, six or seven around there a, a day or two before it was released. They had a couple of really big, well-known South Korean actors. And so I think that team knew they had a hit in South Korea. That, I'm sure that there was a there's plenty of marketing in South Korea. But we really didn't know about it outside of a, outside of a few targeted people who got ads for it, didn't know this was coming out. It was just all of a sudden word of mouth and the internet doing its thing. But it really couldn't have existed without Netflix because you have to be on a streaming service that's in everyone's home that everyone has access to. And they are the closest streaming service to that type of um, position. I think it's got to say something, too, just about a commitment to international content like it's not as if netflix puts money into a south korean show and just says well it'll people people who are in south korea or are from south korea or who speak <laughs> korean will understand it they do commit to their you know they have they subtitle everything they have lots of languages where they do dubs they my understanding is that they have even though there's that story about how I guess it's been going around that people who speak Korean think that the English translation of Squid Game is terrible. <laughs> um, you know they do commit and apparently have spent more money to make better dubs and better subs than they than they used to on this. So clearly, you know, part of this is they they want anything that they make somewhere in the world to be able to play everywhere else. At one hundred percent, and I think if we look at how the different companies operate, right? Netflix's strategy is we're going to develop teams in core markets, and I and then eventually, kind of in every market, and they are going to find localized content that they really believe in. And of that localized content, we're hopeful that you know ten, fifteen percent of it really travels internationally because we know that there is a hunger for this type of content. People just need to see it. I mean, a great example is like if you look at people at what another kind of rising show right now on Netflix is post squid game is a show called alice in borderland which is a phenomenal japanese show kind of dystopian thriller same type of vibes as squid game um and people are watching it because it's you know surfacing kind of right after squid game and that's a japanese show and once you kind of get into the position where you're you're, you're almost training your audience your consumer base and to what you, you're exactly right jason like to, and you offer dubs you offer subs you offer a version that people are interested in watching it th uh, through all of a sudden this content now becomes in it, it's no longer out of sight out of mind it is directly in front of people um i do think i think there also is something to be said about the fact that they go in and really treat each region as its own thing and not just we are netflix and therefore whatever we make is going to be popular i think that the, that's what you kind of get with disney a lot 
where Disney kind of goes, we have Marvel, we have Star Wars. This is people around the world love this. Um, and Netflix doesn't have that yet. And so Netflix has to go, well, what appeals to each of our different customers in each of our different countries and maybe and how and what appeals globally? And they kind of look into that. The as from the perspective, and I know that people listen to podcasts all over the world. So just to add this North American perspective, um, entertainment, popular entertainment on TV in North America is in English. Like, I don't think people in Europe especially understand that that (laughs) we don't do subs on movie screens. We don't do dubbing of anything anywhere and it's very common in other parts of the world and i look at what netflix is doing and to a certain extent some of the other streamers that have have international aspirations and i think that it's it's like an underserved market that um and i know there are niche streamers that do this uh britbox and acorn do this with a lot of european especially like dramas and mysteries and stuff where they'll find like a swedish drama and they'll subtitle it or they'll dub it and they'll put it on but like for something like netflix i feel like there's a whole unexploited north american entertainment market that we before we you know tv networks would be just like well of course not. We're not putting anything on that's not in English and made in English. And yet you see a breakout like Squid Game or I think maybe one of the classics, uh, uh, Money Heist, which is uh, from Spain, and maybe Dark from Germany. Like they're mm-hmm. not not huge hits, but really successful shows that were never made for English language audiences. And, you know, I, I think it's to Netflix's credit that those, you know, they're, they're kind of introducing a whole generation of audiences in North America to the idea that, yeah, you can, you can watch a show that didn't originate in English. It's okay. And of course, Netflix benefits because then people are watching those shows uh, in the U S and, and all the people in the U S get to get to watch that show and it gets back some of their investment for making that show in Spain or Germany or Korea or Japan. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head too, which is, not not even five years ago, but if we look at kind of five, 10, 15, three years ago, the move in Hollywood, it still is to an extent, was to look at something that did really well in in Japan, in Germany, in Italy, whatever it might be, and then go, Remake we can it. make that. Yeah, we can make that with a, with typically speaking with very attractive white actors who are going to be on the screen and they're going to speak English and they're going to look like Hollywood. And I think what this has proven is that people don't want typical Hollywood all the time. They just want really good storytelling and they're more than happy to watch it via subbed version, which with subtitles, via dub version, which does have the English voice acting overlaid. Um, but I think what else, I was looking into this because I was just interested. And I was looking at kind of like the increase in demand for Asian content, specifically out of Japan and South Korea over the last five years or so um, and take out anime because that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but it's there's a noticeable increase over the last two to three years, a, a, a drastic one. And I thought, you know, what is what is the big difference between three years ago and five years ago? And it's the proliferation of online streaming and mm. the collapse of virtual borders. It is this idea that like American Hollywood executives for a long time could, I mean, one, their primary audience was the U.S. The U.S. is still a primary audience, but it's 
less of one. I think, two, they were locked up with so many regional issues where they were like, we can't license it here. We can't bring it here because of who owns the rights. All of a sudden, you have players like Netflix and Amazon who are thinking globally and, and Disney who starts to think globally. And all of a sudden, these things start to become much more accessible. And you see a really big increase in audience demand for content that they just wouldn't have access to years ago. And it's not like... This stuff wasn't available in the American market, but like I remember when I was in grad school going to a theater on University Avenue in Berkeley and with some friends <laughs> and watching some, you know, Hong Kong, like John Woo, Hong Kong action movies. I forget mm-hmm. what I forget what we saw there, but you know, I, I have seen those movies, but they were again, they were like art house in urban areas, college students, stuff like that. Whereas we now live in an era, and I don't know whether this is a, a result of what you just described or whether it was just uh, maybe something that helped push it further into the mainstream, but Parasite winning all the yes. Oscars, I feel like is the that, that is the flag being planted. And it's not as if um, Bong Joon-ho hadn't been, like, I, I've seen several of his movies before Parasite <laughs> came out, right? But that was that breakthrough moment of like, uh, yeah, uh, this South Korean movie is not just uh, a curiosity in the art houses, but it's like it won the Oscars. It won all the Oscars. Uh, you, you need to take it seriously. And and I don't know. I mean, you're you're almost building like a literacy from yes. an audience that has no in in the North American market at least has very little literacy in the films and culture of anywhere else. And and that's exactly. what we're seeing. I, that's exactly it. And I also, you know, I'm going to add to that because I think, yeah, I think Parasite was absolutely a huge point, especially in the traditional kind of film, television, we think of that space. Um, I'm going to add K-pop. Yeah. The proliferation of K-pop mm-hmm. and therefore people being, um, I don't really like to use the word exposed because exposed feels negative, but they've just been more aware of like different talent coming out of South Korea and the, and the, the arts entertainment scene there. And so if we look at the art scene in, as a whole, which is television, you know, books, uh, a film, of course, and then the, the musical acts. Now you've got this huge new wave from a younger generation of fans who are looking to South Korea. And to an extent, you know, we have J-pop in Japan and a bunch of others. They're looking over there and they're going, I'm interested in this content. I want to discover it. I want to look out for more. And so when you have that momentum going, which is something I look into a lot too, it's like when, when you have that momentum, it just leads to more discovery. And the benefit for someone like Netflix is that the there's often a lot to discover because they're a global company, because they have regional content that they have on their platform it leads to discovery on their own platform and therefore higher engagement and therefore probably a a reduced in churn so their subscribers aren't canceling as much so it's kind of the ideal situation that they want to be in but they absolutely did not plan it (laughs) yeah this is i mean this is i mentioned earlier franchises aren't bought they're made you know amazon spends huge amounts of money on lord of the rings and stuff like that and there there was an hbo max uh, or hbo i guess proper trailer for the game of thrones prequel that dropped and and you know there you can you can put money into something and say we're trying to prefab a franchise here but i look at stranger things you mentioned it earlier right like that was not that was a quirky little ladies throwback thing that that broke big and became a franchise for netflix but it didn't they this is a validation i i give I'm not Netflix's biggest fan. I roll my eyes sometimes 
at the fact that they drop everything at once and they have this enormous volume strategy that makes it very hard to track anything. And then when something comes, it's immediately gone again and the conversation doesn't last very long. It frustrates me immensely. But I look at this and I go, well, this would not have happened if Netflix didn't have a very strong strategy of being all over the world and producing shows in high volume. And you know what? Like they can buy all the comic book studios they want, hoping for some sort of intellectual property that will become a franchise. But I kind of feel like they should just keep making TV shows and they're going to get their hits. And those are going to be their franchises for the next, I don't know how long, decades. Yeah, the the interesting question that I always have with Netflix is the um, longevity of what they're trying to do. And so I look at something like Stranger Things, which I think has pretty longevity, and it's like they can build a franchise out of that. They've got some kind of secondary. And I've got, you know, I've kind of got a whole criteria for how you make um, the decision on what to do once you've got a hit. Like, I, it's the thing I work on a lot. <laughs> and they, they have a lot, they hit a lot of those points with Stranger Things. And Squid Game is really interesting because is it just a one-off? You know, can, is there something to really tap into here that you can kind of turn into something bigger that creates a really big cultural impact for years to come? And mm-hmm. I think that's when we look at Marvel and Star Wars, obviously they have done it and they do it through interconnectivity. They do it through years of planning. And I think what Netflix doesn't necessarily do as well is Netflix doesn't plan very well in terms of like, well, we have an idea of what we kind of want to do with this and we're just going to see it through. They, they did before and I think now it's just become much harder for them to do. And, and I respect that they're trying to figure that out. Um, but when we think about Stranger Things, to your point, like Jason, it's, they didn't market Stranger Things when it first came out. They didn't know it was going to be a hit either and it just became one. And now it's their thing. You know, it, they're getting better by realizing their hits. But I think in terms of are we going to be able to create something that has the kind of cultural cachet of what Disney and Warner are doing, they don't have. And at the same time, that is extremely hard to predict. You know, I don't, I think HBO probably knew they had a hit in Game of Thrones. I don't think HBO knew they had Game of Thrones. Like, I think it was just cool. This is now a thing that we can do. And there's other books. And it's a fantasy world that we can break off into other things. Um, so I think what Netflix is going to be in a really good position to figure out is, okay, we have these international hits that we think could travel looking at the reception to them. How do we promote this into enough people's homes? You know, we control our homepage. It's the most vital piece of uh, property in, in Hollywood. We control our homepage. How do we create more attention here so that way we can build out these franchises without spending too much money and really create last, long-lasting cultural impact? And I think that's going to be interesting for them to figure out. Yeah, I was going to say, what I wonder is... If because we can say Netflix doesn't have a Star Wars, it doesn't have a Marvel, it doesn't have a Star Trek, even it doesn't have a Game of Thrones. Okay, I I think it's at least arguable that if they did, I'm not sure it would be like the the dog that caught the car, right? It's like <laughs> would they know what to do with it when they got it? I'm not because because I do wonder. You mentioned it. It's like uh, is Netflix even kind of built that way? They seem to be so culturally about firing everything off in every direction that would they have the ability if they got a thing that legitimately could be the next star wars or something a a franchise that they could do multiple versions of and they could invest in like five or five different shows think about like the star wars on disney plus like different shows and interlinked in a connected universe and we're going to really promote it and it's going to be huge and it's going to be a huge part of our our customer retention because we're going to have a different one every week like that would that's like not Netflix. That's so antithetical to how they operate that I, I do wonder if 
if they if if whatever Netflix considers a franchise is what anyone else would consider a franchise, or if they just think that differently about how they roll out their content. I think it's definitely that I, you hit the nail on the head. And I think Sarandos has said this where he constantly says, like, of course, like we'd love franchises, but we're focused on hits. I mean, of course, the irony of that right. statement is that most hits end up becoming franchises and right. franchises are built on hits. E- easier to make but, a hit when it's part of the franchise. If it's a hit franchise. Sure. E- exactly. And I think what, what Netflix has done really well is they've they have so many great executives over there who are creative by nature. And I think that's missing from a lot of other studios, um, which will go unnamed. But what Netflix doesn't have is a puzzle master. Like they don't have a Kevin Feige who can look at it and be like, okay, 10 years from now, what is this? What is the short-term hit that we take setting things up? Or we know, you know, which sounds funny to say it because it's Marvel, but we know that we might have a bit of a dud of a Disney Plus show because we're trying to build this out. We know early on, like, this is going to take a minute to get people really into the idea of it. But once we do it, once we build it out, once we see a little bit of interest and, and success... Where do we go from there? And that's, you know, that's hard to do. I mean, if of course, if everyone could build a Marvel Cinematic Universe, everyone would have built a Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they have not because I think it was just the right time, right place, right team. Um, but, you know, I think look at Netflix, Bright was supposed to be one of their big franchise things and nothing really came of it. And then when, like, when you look at their other franchise plays, it's all very... Uh, methodical like you get the witcher and the witcher then has an anime spinoff and then a prequel series and they do that with everyone bright has an anime spinoff and so they do all these things where they're like we what's the kind of easy way to go across all of our properties really tap into what we think people will want extra of it and delve into it and that's not take away from the creatives working on it because i'm sure those shows are phenomenal and it adds to it but i I think netflix needs a franchise kind of exec who can sit there and go how do we bring in live experiences how do we bring in actual cool you know uh, merchandise that creates affinity and, and most importantly how and on the gaming side but most importantly how do we establish that we're going to take a chance on this and we're going to go for you know uh, two or three movies we're going to go for three or four seasons we're going to have to build it up to get to where we kind of want to be um and i don't know if they have that but i would not be surprised if that's something that they are act they actively work on you know because they want those too you remember that moment where Disney Plus at some Disney or Star Wars event, I don't remember which, but they basically said, here are the next like five Star Wars shows that we're working on. Yeah. And it wasn't even all of them. And then also they said, here are the next seven Marvel shows that we're working on. And that's not something we've seen from Netflix where they're like, hey, you like Stranger Things or whatever. Uh, well, guess what? We're going to do we've, we're announcing now that we're going to have four different Stranger Things spinoff shows in production and you'll see them over the next two years. Like that's a big change for them culturally. And I don't know. Honestly, would it work? Would it matter? Would it would it make any difference in Netflix's business? I don't know. Maybe not. Well, and there's precedent for it not working. Right? I think if we look at the fact that Warner and Sony tried to rush out their movies and their universes to catch up to Marvel and they were. Um, you know, outside of kind of the, the Snyder fan base, which is very big and, and those films did not catch on culturally yeah. as much as Marvel did. And so I think Netflix goes again, if it, if we could build an MCU, of course we would. And they're, they've, they've tried, right? They had Jupiter's legacy and that was a massive flop, but that yeah. was supposed to be interconnected and they have shadow and bone and they have some act, like licensing moments where you can look at it and go, there's a world here that you could explore and exploit to create a franchise. I think 
what they don't necessarily have. And I think they are getting better at it, though. We have to remember, too, Netflix is is young. Netflix is a young company making original content compared to everyone else. Because I think they have to look at, like, what stories with art, with with characters are resonating with people, not just, okay, there's a world-building aspect to it. And again, easier said than done, of course. Like, I'm sure that there are executives paid very well to have these conversations at great length. Um, and it's it's hard. You you made uh, the, the perfect point there, though, which is something I wanted to mention. The idea that not everything is a franchise and not everything is franchisable and that the risk on the other side is that you say, we have a hit, let's make it a franchise, and you misunderstand why it's a hit. And I look at something like Squid Game and I think, I was actually reminded of, I mean, it, a a it's battle royale esque, so you can you can think about that. You can think about the Hunger Games, and I when I think about the Hunger Games, I think about a book that was a big hit, and so the author wrote another version of the exact same book, and yes. then wrote a sorry Hunger Games fans, and then wrote a really really bad third book in that series, and and, and then ended up backtracking all the way back to prequels where she could sort of tell the same version of the story. Like Hunger Games, I would argue, was kind of a story that stood alone, and then the second book in that series basically replayed it a little bit better because she it was her second crack at it. And I look at yeah. something like Squid Game and I think the same thing, which is just because something's good doesn't mean you can just keep replaying it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's not good, right? There are lots of stories that are amazing when they're told and they resonate and they break out and they become hits and they become touchstones, but not all of them can be put on repeat. And Stranger Things, I would argue, might be the same way where it's like a... Stephen King-esque 80s thing with these kids like and all the Spielberg uh, homages and like I get it but beyond that world will you find people are like oh yes I wanted to know about some peripheral character in that maybe but like that's the other risk here is that you invest a lot of money in something that really is just a one shot or or is good for three seasons or whatever and, and is never going to be a franchise. Right. And I think you also, to your exact point, then you run into an issue which has plagued entertainment and the world for many decades, but it's become much more apparent over the last 20, 25 years, which is this idea that something like Squid Game takes off. And I compared it when I was talking to someone to Twilight taking off because they said, you know, like, well, what is it about this? And I said, sometimes you just have, a, like, sometimes something just pops off. But then what happens is that everyone goes, I need that. And so we see 10,000 Twilight type stories. We see 10,000 Game of Thrones type stories. We see 10,000 Star Wars type stories, right? Like they all try to just repeat that success, not really understanding why this popped up. And sometimes, which I think makes a lot of, um, especially friends of mine who are data scientists and very data driven and analytical, I think it makes them a little bit crazy. It's like sometimes it just, that just worked. Mm. Like some, it just, it just was a thing and it took off and that's what it is. And trying to, it was the time. It was the, maybe it's the cast. It's like, but, but it has dragons in it. Let's do shows with dragons. It's like, was the dragon part the part that got people? Maybe not. Maybe, and maybe it's lightning in a bottle. You can never, I mean, you really can't ever replicate it. Like, good luck. No, and that's exactly, and I think to your exact point, just to echo it, understanding when you have a cool hit and you go, great, maybe we do another season or two of that, but we also let <laughs> it breathe and that's its own show and mm-hmm. we're done with it versus being like, there's something about these characters and, and this world. And, and then I, again, I've got a whole criteria that I could go into, like understanding what you have in that moment and can this be something that we turn into three, four shows, you know, in a movie, like whatever it might be. That's a, it's a complicated question. I don't know if Squid Game is that for them. And I think yeah. to an extent, 
Netflix probably knows that where I'm sure they're having discussions about can we do more with this outside of another season or two. But I think it's also like we have, I mean, Netflix spends $18 billion a year on content. They can look at other things and say, this might work better for a franchise potential. We'll see how it goes. Then trying to force a rocket in a, uh, a, bo- a right rocket in a bottle. Yeah. Hit. Um, to fr- trying to force that into something that right. it doesn't have to be. Not every hit is a franchise. It doesn't have to be a franchise. Everybody's yeah. looking for franchises. Not every hit is a franchise, right? Like, <laughs> it's okay. Speaking of franchises, though, and it's funny because I this sort of like harmonized in our little list of things to talk about today because there's, there's our discussion of Squid Game being a hit and about Netflix and franchises. A lot of franchises, like in... On the other side of the fence, in the old world of linear TV, network television, some a trend that seems to be accelerating now is the idea that if you want to put a show on network television, it needs to be part of a franchise. Like that is a great has become a great success. Um, Law and Order was brought back was announced to be brought back by NBC last week. CSI, as we record this, I think tonight or tomorrow night, CSI, the original, is returning to CBS. They handed out an order to LA Law as a remake or a continuation for ABC. These are all and by the way, if LA Law succeeds, get ready for Chicago Law, Seattle Law, uh, <laughs> uh Louisiana Law, we'll call it because I like the I like the alliteration there. So you know, I wanted to ask you, I know you commented on this, because really, if it isn't about Squid Game and Law and & Order, why are we not here? Those are the big uh, franchises of the week. Um, I agree. Wh- what is the relationship between uh, having a linear TV network and having a streaming service for stuff like this? Because I would imagine having a giant catalog means it's super bingeable. You can go in to you know, whatever related Paramount Plus or Peacock or, or wherever and binge all of the Law & Orders or all of the CSIs. Uh, and then you've also got new shows that are coming on the linear network and presumably then like next day go to streaming. Like how do those interact and 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 why are we seeing the the old <laughs> old TV networks and their streaming services um, embracing all of these? Because it's not just this, right? It's like the Chicago shows from Dick Wolf are also a franchise. They're, they're like there's so much franchised content on on the networks now. Yeah, and Dick Wolf is himself a franchise. Oh, like yeah. Dick, and and what I love about Dick Wolf is that it's like the no offense to Dick Wolf, I watch every single one of his shows. It is the laziest form of it. It is just like <laughs> this in a new city with similar mm-hmm. stories, but it works. And it's like you know what they have figured it out, and good for him. I think the conversation that's been happening a lot, um, and this is kind of spurred to by the Hollywood Reporter article that came out yesterday, kind of talking about why is Law and Order such a big deal for NBC? It's one of the few shows that really still kind of kills in ratings. Um, I mean. Kills and ratings in terms of what ratings are in 2021. Uh, it brings in an audience. If it has that and it's an established IP, it's an established known franchise. Why would you not bring it to Peacock, which is struggling to find subscribers, struggling to keep them? Why wouldn't you make it a thing there? My thought on it is that they have already thought about that and discussed it. They've already said, is Law and Order bringing it back? Is this type of show we bring to Peacock? We're going to there and then bring with us potentially low engagement users, at-risk users of never switching over. People like my parents who would are not going to go to Peacock normally, right. but love Law & Order. I assume that Law & Order is not the type of show that would get people to sign up, even those who are watching Law & Order on a weekly basis. Because I think the way that we think of be, um, human behavior 
somebody who turns on their TV on Thursday because that they know that's when Law & Order's on is not the same person who's going to go to Peacock every Thursday or, or whenever it drops to go watch it. They're not going to open their an app to go and find it when they can just open up their TV and they're used to like five, six, you know, seven channels that they regularly watch. And so I think when we look at the decision the networks are making right now about whether to put something on uh, their, their network with ABC, CBS, NBC, or do those shows then go to streaming companies owned by their corporations? So you've got Hulu, Disney Plus, uh, Paramount Plus, and Peacock. I think the question, there's two questions you have to answer. Is this worth the short-term hit that we will take on the linear side and potentially on the ad side to bring more people to the streaming service? And two, related, is this a show that is actually going to bring people to our streaming service and stop those from canceling? I think Law & Order being on Peacock will stop customers from canceling. I think it's a fun addition to have. I don't think it brings people in. And considering NBC is still so heavily focused on linear, which is in itself a problem, it's huh. they don't see it as a short, they don't see the short-term hit being worth it. You know, Disney would be the, a, a, a different opinion. I um I remember on, uh probably on the TV talk machine back in the day, uh, um I talked to Tim Goodman about this, the idea that having worked in media, Sometimes, you know, you know that the salespeople are running the organization um, and that you get just there's some some corporate cultures end up getting aligned against uh, a particular part of the business like sales, where like in my Mm -hmm. company uh, back in the day, the there was a head of sales and a head of content. But the CEO of the company would always be from the sales side. Right. They, they never made the almost never did somebody from the content side manage these companies. And and the truth is, it is a media company. It is about both things. You you don't necessarily being selling advertising doesn't necessarily make you the more qualified to be a CEO. Um, and I look at, at, at some of the decisions with the linear channels, especially, uh, but also sometimes when. Uh, you get these convoluted streaming services that like have a base free version with ads and then a higher version. And I, I look at it and I think to myself, well, the salespeople are running it, right? Like that, like they can't imagine there's not a product that they can't sell ads into. And, and so I look at NBC and I absolutely see that being the case, right? Which is why would we do uh, something on our streaming service when we could not put it on network and sell ads? And I'll grant you law and order, average age of that viewer is probably what 60 65 they're probably not going to peacock right away at least a lot of them and so why not put why not start it there but i also feel like there is a cultural aspect of this which is first we're going to monetize it on nbc with linear advertising and then we're going to put it on peacock which has an ad tier where we can make more ad revenue and then also you can pay to get rid of the ads it's just it sounds very nbc to me Absolutely. And I also think like to your point about the average viewer of Law and Order, what we have to do is also separate like the average viewer of Law and Order SVU is probably skewed a little bit younger, a little bit more female, if I had to guess. Sure. The average viewer of Law and Order Organized Crime, which is the new one with Chris Maloney, probably skews a little bit older, probably, you know, kind of in the middle, male, female. Law and Order, a show that went off the air a few years ago, and no one has thought about ten outside years. of like, I think it's been ten years since the yeah, main I, mothership Law and Order was on. You know, I say things like two years ago, and I realize that's like when the pandemic started. And it's time <laughs> flat circle. But wow. yeah, I think if we if we think about all that, what audience is rushing to sign up, including Law and Order fans, to watch us on Peacock? But I also think 
what this says to me a lot, and this is something that we already kind of knew, but this really cements it, is that Comcast and NBC Universal want Peacock to take off, but it's and they say it's a priority, but I mean every action says otherwise. Because I think if we look at a, a better example, it would be what Disney's doing, where Disney looked at Hulu and said, "We kind of want to grow this. We want we want this to be a thing. We want this to be a core part of our Disney streaming services bundle." And they took a bunch of FX shows, which are linear shows on uh, kind of premium cable, uh, and brought it to. Um, Hulu. And they said these are now FX on Hulu originals. And the only way to kind of watch it is to have Hulu. And the demand for those shows has absolutely seen a, a jump. And therefore, I imagine it's probably translated to Hulu subscribers, which has seen you know, every quarter um, a jump in subscribers, probably via the bundle. And so what that says to me is Disney's top executives are going, we are all in on streaming. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to take a short term hit on the linear side a little bit. We might lose some ads there. We might do whatever it is. But we're going to bring people to Hulu. We're going to bring all this stuff over to our streaming platform because that's our core investment. You've got kind of HBO, uh, Warner Media doing similar type stuff where they're trying to figure out how to get TBS and TNT content onto HBO Max and how to bring more originals over there. But with the Viacom CBS, which has, uh, of course, CBS and, and Paramount Plus, um, and Comcast, NBC Universal, who has Peacock and NBC, it's way different because they're going... We have these linear channels where the majority of our revenue is coming in. We're licensing a lot of our shows because there's revenue coming in from there. And at the same time, we want our streaming platforms to grow. But if you don't have exclusives and if you don't have really high, uh, really type of, of high engagement entertainment, those aren't going to grow. And when you are a massive linear network who has big sports deals, who's trying to figure out how to keep those going at the same time, it might be a little bit harder to go. We're going to take the short term hit. We're going to just go in for the long and see what happens, especially on a show like Law and Order, which is like a bet in and of itself. I, I Thinking about it, it's funny you mentioned Hulu because we actually did kind of unintentionally a Hulu doubleheader last night. We watched Only Murders in the Building and Why the Last Man. And I was like, oh, these are both Hulu shows. I see. Yeah. Um, the uh, Which, which was, was kind of fun and random. And those are Hulu mm -hmm. originals. And I think Hulu has done a good job. Hulu was my winner of streaming services during the pandemic, where I, I found myself watching a lot more on Hulu than I expected and a lot less on Netflix, actually. Um, so go figure. I do think it's funny though, thinking about NBC that NBC always had this conflict, right? They had their like procedural thing that was more, a little more CBS like, and then they had their younger skewing, uh, probably more urban and more educational, like higher levels of education skewing, you know, they're, they're smart New York sitcoms, right? That had started with Seinfeld and and moved forward to like 30 Rock. Like they're, th that was also part of NBC's brand. And what I think is interesting is now it feels like they took that that second thing, your, your, your Tina Fey, Mike Schur kind of show, and they said, Peacock. <laughs> like we're going to put those, those on Peacock. People will find them there. But Law & Order... Oh, that's going to be on NBC. And I don't know if that's the right strategy or not. I, I feel like I've enjoyed a bunch of shows on Peacock, a bunch of the originals that they've done there, the comedies. Um, I feel as if no one knows they exist. I, I, and I, I don't know anything more than nobody seems to be talking about uh, any of them, about Rutherford Falls or Girls 5 Eva or what else is on there. Um uh, we are Lady Parts is on there, right? And uh, uh, AP Bio is on there, and like, there's some good stuff on there, and yet, meh. I also think comedies are less 
uh, ratings juggernauts, especially yeah. in the last 15 years. And I think it's harder to get people to tune into something and advertisers to kind of position themselves along the comedy. I think Law and Order is the type of show where that demographic who will watch it and they can go, we're going to make some you know, better advertising money in this, in this spot with this type of show. And we're going to try to bring it to Peacock next day for the audience that is there if they want to watch it. I think also when they, when we look at Mike Schur's shows and we look at all these, they tend to skew a little bit younger. And so if you're launching a streaming service and you're initially trying to target a kind of young subscriber base, who's going to be the first ones to adopt new technology, they are going to go, cool. I like Mike Schur. I like these shows. I'm going to turn tune into this and watch it. And I'm going to sign up for this. Um, they need to get low engagement and 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 high risk kind of sorry low engagement therefore high risk um high reward subscribers over to peacock that is something that they're struggling with i mean they're getting it's hard for them to get people to even know it exists in that age group and i think that will be a conversation that they have with their big flagship um shows and they you know maybe the answer is to get dick wolf and he might already be doing this to do something specifically for peacock and (laughs) go that route but i think with law and order and one season see how performs see if the hype comes back maybe then you move it to simultaneous linear and and streaming um but for now it's i think it's a play to be like for the network for ad money that they can then take and spend on streaming and be like great we're figuring that out i just my gut feeling is, because I'm sure they've had these conversations, Law & Order is not going to do on streaming what a lot of people think it's going to do. It's just not worth the short-term hit because I don't think there's a long-term return there. Right. I mean, other than laying more bricks in the in, in, in the foundation of your your catalog, right? Like that that's a that strikes me as being a very catalog kind of show, which is, yeah, you're, gonna, you're, you're home on a rainy afternoon and you watch some Law & Order on streaming, but it's a destination programming yeah i don't know exactly um speaking while we're on the the kind of what's a franchise and what isn't theme that was kind of accidental but this is where we are um i wanted to talk briefly about what's been going on with um theatrical with with actual movie theater movies ish um because it also says something about what is a franchise and what is not a franchise um because uh the venom sequel which is Sony's Spider-Man-ish universe, so it's not quite an it's not an MCU movie, but it is a Marvel adjacent movie. Venom: Let There Be Carnage uh, came out in movie theaters and has done surprisingly well. Um, mm-hmm. And also, The Many Saints of Newark, the prequel to the HBO series The Sopranos, uh, came into theaters and also onto HBO Max and didn't get very good reviews. Mm-hmm. Flopped at the box office. And I don't know. I feel like that says something about what's a franchise and what isn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also, I also think trying to turn The Sopranos into a franchise was always an interesting thing. Or I don't think they were trying to do. That. I think they were just kind of like people like The Sopranos. David Chase seems like he's up for this. He wants let's, to do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. If anything, it's just something we can have. I don't, it's funny. I think people thought that movie was going to do gangbusters numbers and I, I never did. I, I was just kind of like, this seems like a movie that will appeal to Sopranos fans, of which there are many, but a lot of Sopranos fans aren't necessarily trying to go watch a new movie. Like I think of my aunt and uncle who loved the original show. They have no interest in the movie. Like they're kind of like, yeah, like it's whatever. Um, so I think like, that's a core disconnect versus 
Venom, which performed decently, the first Venom, which performed decently in the U.S., but had a massive uh, win in China. There seems to be a lot of disconnect, I think, between The Sopranos as a show and therefore the movie doing well. Like People, I think, were expecting to do gangbusters numbers, and I kind of never did because I just thought... This show is it's an old show and it has a lot of fans, but not a lot of those fans are going to be rushing out to a movie theater, especially in the middle of a pandemic, to go and watch this film that they can kind of watch on HBO Max or they can watch later. They can catch up with it. And I wasn't the type of movie that was also going to do, I think, an insane amount of streams or or have a bunch of subscriber additions because HBO Max, those Sopranos fans are already there. Um, and kind of all these things, these underlying issues versus Venom, a movie like the first movie did very well in China and performed decently in the U.S., has had a few years to really become a cult hit. It's one of the, you know, it's a big Marvel movie, even though it's not Marvel Studios. Tom Hardy is an incredibly in-demand actor around the world. And I think it's the type of movie where you go, I want to watch this in theaters. This is the type of thing I've been waiting for, like Shang-Chi, like Black Widow. And so it was to me when we have the theatrical debate, you know, if this movie was somewhere else on streaming would it have done worse in theaters probably you know probably about five ten million dollars less in theaters but it's the idea that this movie is worth going to watch and worth spending money on um, and this movie is not worth me leaving my house to go see yeah also i mean it, it sure helps that this is sony right who does not have a, a streaming service business plan to balance against the theatrical releases i think that makes it a lot easier for them <laughs> like yeah we're gonna release this in in movie theaters um, I just think it's really interesting that yeah, when when you talk about a beloved a beloved property, it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to rush out to see a new brand extension of it. And uh, although I agree with you, I think in the end HBO just was happy to be in business with David Chase, who wanted to revisit some aspect of The Sopranos, and so he and so he did. And who knows? I mean, in the end, it may be something that everybody who watched The Sopranos revisits on HBO Max and is happy about. Uh, and it wasn't just driving them to theaters. I feel like this is going to be a recurring conversation between us about what's going on, uh, given pandemic conditions and uh, what box office looks like and what, uh, like we were saying about networks balancing the future of their streaming business versus their network. Uh, everybody is balancing their theatrical releases with the future of their streaming business. And and so we're, we're going to have to keep talking about it because there's a lot of experimentation happening and we're starting to see sort of results in terms of real box office numbers. And uh, this is going to be like, I, I think nobody knows exactly what theatrical distribution is going to look like in even a couple of years because, you know, you can't, you won't know until you try, I think. And I also think I I would love to hear, you know, listeners thoughts on this. The story that comes out every week that I'm so eye rolly about now is like, depending on how one movie does, it's either movies or theaters are dead or theaters are back. Like no matter what, it's like this movie proves this. And then when a movie does really well on Netflix, it's like uh, or, or streaming anywhere. It's like, cool, theaters are dead. Streamers are alive. And then when you have something like HBO Max. Um, specifically, and the uh, the Sopranos movie, you have oh my God, Jason Kyler, who's the CEO of Warner Media. See what happened? He ruined everything. And I think it's like so easy, especially on the internet, to get into this hyperbolic setting where it's like everything is win or lose. When the reality is like what counts in terms of revenue metrics and what companies are looking for are so vastly different across theatrical distribution and streaming that we have to take into account when we look at a, a movie in a theater. Box office, opening weekend box office has always been the kind of big uh, um, design for like, okay, cool, this is great. It's doing well in theaters and we, we, we're, we're successful. 
I think when we look at something on streaming specifically, it's how many uh, subscribers did it bring in? How many subscribers no, didn't cancel, be- who are at risk of canceling, didn't because of this movie? How many subscribers did it bring in over 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? Did we see an increase in engagement? Did it lead to them watching other originals? They're so different. And I think when we look at the kind of simultaneous release that was brought in, say what you will about Jason Kyler, but, you know, kind of thinking about Law & Order, he did the opposite where he said, we're going to take the short-term hit. We're going to do this thing. We're going to try and get HBO Max in this year to really be the go-to choice for a lot of consumers. And I think that has, inc- that's helped exponentially. You know, like I am a big fan of, of Kyler and I think people say, have a lot to say about him. And I think that he definitely probably messed up in a few areas, but he looked at it and said, we're going to sacrifice a little and hopefully we're going to bring these customers to HBO Max. And once they're there, we're going to fight to keep them there. And then by 2022, which we'd all predicted, he goes, yeah, we're going back to theaters. So it takes one year to get people on HBO Max that might not have come otherwise, takes a little bit of hit one year at the box office and then goes back in 2022 and they've got a really strong um, slate. And he goes, we're going to do this entirely theatrical. And I think that's the way to do it. So to end my rant, to end my <laughs> rant, I think when we look at box office numbers or when we look at the stories coming out, if you're listening to this and you want to keep a keen eye on it, you'll see the hyperbolic stuff start to come out. But just know that there are so many different metrics of success these days that it's not just this movie did well at the theaters. But I mean, congrats to Venom. That's a huge win. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) if nothing else, we're seeing that movies can do well at the box office. Like. That was a question for a while is like, is can any movie, even even the ideal movie, will it actually bring people to the theaters? And I think we've seen with Shang-Chi and with Venom that, that the answer is yes. Yeah, people will go see at least some movies, some places. Um, all yes, right. I always say Marvel, Marvel, Mar- Marvel will Marvel. Yeah, Marvel's, <laughs> Marvel's going to Marvel. Um, it got me back to a movie theater for the first time in more than a year. So I get it. I get it. Uh, before we go, uh, it is October. And that means it is uh, it is the spooky season, as it were. Uh, and you tweeted something that made me laugh, and I thought that we, we should talk about it uh, here at the beginning of October, which is how to experience Halloween and spooky and horror and other kinds of content on these streaming services. And you made a list. You actually made a list of like the best services for this kind of content for your for your holiday themed, your Halloween themed viewing you want to explain your uh your 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 list and and why you chose what you chose yeah absolutely but jason i have to know are you a horror fan are you going to do 31 days of halloween i no i'm not <laughs> i i'm 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 not like quite as weak stomached as other people but like until my friend todd who works at ilm uh did a he did two years ago he did a halloween screening of halloween <laughs> at ilm and i went to that and it was great. It was also the first time I saw Halloween. So that'll show you how completely not understanding of the horror movie genre I am. But sure, you know, I like I yeah, scary stuff can be fun. Like I'm open to it. I'm I'm open. I mean, I love that. So I'm a huge, huge fan of scary movies. I watch them all year round. But Halloween month, I try to jam pack in as many as I can. Usually I get anywhere between 45 and 50 in. Um, this year we're on track to probably do a little bit more than that. So I'm going to preface this by saying the streaming services I listed don't include specialty ones, which I highly recommend signing up for. A lot of them are doing seven day, 14 day or 30 day trials. So they're perfect for the month. Those would include things like Shudder and Criterion Channel. Um, which are going to have a fantastic selection of really independent or classic um, films that aren't going to be available 
on mainstream platforms. But the ones that I recommended for in terms of people who just want to rely on streaming services they probably already have, and based on some number crunching I did in my Excel sheet, I think the top three streaming services that I'm returning to more often than not to watch horror are Hulu, Prime Video, and Netflix. And this is kind of based on a, a, a collection of different criteria I put into my Excel sheet, which is, is it international? Is it under 90 minutes? Is it, uh, uh, does it come out in the last 10 years? Is it before 1990? All those type of things I look into. Um, and what I'm uh, impressed with actually quite a bit is Hulu has a phenomenal collection of, of movies across the board, both licensed and original. Prime Video, also huge library. So they've got, uh, and plus they've got the Bloomhouse partnership and A24. So they've got some really good horror movies that are top tier that you can have access to, plus just some really fun um, kind of goofy ones. And then Netflix, actually, you know, their licensed selection isn't as good as I thought it would be, but the originals that they've amassed over the last few years have just been absolutely incredible. And so I'm, I'm really looking at Netflix for originals. And then, of course, if you don't have one of those three or two of those three and you have HBO Max, HBO Max, thanks to TCM and Warner Brothers, of course, has a pretty good selection of horror movies, too. So I think if you aren't looking to subscribe to anything special, you just want to watch some scary flicks, Hulu, which might not be the first that comes to mind, incredible, followed mm. by Prime Video and Netflix. Interesting. And yeah, you know, if you want... Like yeah, Shutter's got a seven day trial. If you're ever gonna do a trial of Shutter, which is the horror movie streaming service, you probably if you care, you probably already know this, but it's out there and there's a seven day trial. So, you know, it's right there if you wanna watch. I don't actually know what's on Shutter right now, but the you know, the, the head of the family and Castle Freak and all these things that I only know because I listen to the Flophouse podcast and Stuart Wellington loves them. Uh, sh- also they're all for, on Shutter. Joe Bob Briggs yeah. did his whole series on Shutter. Like, there's a lot of stuff on Shutter if you don't know about it. And if uh, just to add, if anybody wants something free, because a lot of these are obviously you pay per month, or once the trial's over, you might want to do something later. Um, Tubi, which is the now Fox-owned streaming service that is free just with ads, has a wonderful selection oh. actually of scary movies. And I forgot about Tubi when I was looking for stuff, and then was trying to find a very specific film that was only there um, that came out of Japan a few uh, about twenty years ago. And it is not bad, especially for free. So that's also an option. And uh, this will be, I'm sure we'll do this in the future as well. But if you ever are wondering where is that movie or show, I don't know what you use. I use justwatch.com. It's a great service. You can set what country you're in because, of course, it varies. You go there and it'll tell you where can you stream this, where can you rent this, where can you buy this. And that's how I know that um, the worst movie ever made that I love Frankenstein Island is available on Tubi. So you could just go watch it on Tubi and uh, you won't be able to get through it. But it's so terrible and bad and not a horror movie, really. I mean, sort of, but not. It's a horrible movie is more of what it is. But yeah, try it. Just watch if there's a movie in particular you're wondering where it is. Um, That's cool. That's cool. Maybe I will do something more than Ghostbusters for (laughs) Halloween this year. I mean, great movie. It is. It it, it is. Okay, I think that that's going to wrap up episode one. We did it. We have lots more that we could have talked about. We'll, but we'll be back in two weeks, and we'll have more. We'll have more time to talk about these things. That was so fun. Talk about them every other week. So earlier in this very podcast, Julia mentioned we would like to hear from listeners. We would like to hear from listeners. If you've got a question for us uh, or a comment, uh, you send us a tweet. We are on Twitter at downstream pod. 
You can email us downstream at theincomparable.com. That's the podcast network I run that isn't Relay FM. I'm hoping to convince Stephen Hackett to give us a Relay FM email address, but he has not yet been convinced. So the uh, downstream at theincomparable.com for now. Uh, and of course, uh, we do love if you do. I want to do a regular question segment like we used to do on uh, TV Talk Machine. Love to your mothers. Send in your questions at Downstream Pod. And you can find Julia at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter and, of course, ParrotAnalytics.com. You can find me at JSnell on Twitter and SixColors.com. And until the next fortnight when we will be back, uh, Julia, thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.